Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 152. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lend It Fintech. Support for Lend Academy comes from Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the US. With Wonder, you can earn up to 7.5% annually while helping to finance renewable energy projects. Get started at wondercapital.com/lendacademy. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Christian Faze. He is the CEO and co-founder of LendInvest. Now, LendInvest are based in the UK. They are really the UK's leading online property finance marketplace. They've built up the business on short-term bridge loans, and they're one of the largest providers now in the UK in that space. And they've done this in an online fashion. They've really brought technology to bear on the property lending and property investing process. They have a broad cross-section of investors, which we go into in some depth. We also talk about how the the technology they brought to bear on the borrowing process. Yeah, we talk about the uh, Brexit, the housing shortage in the UK, and we also cover a potential LendInvest IPO. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. Okay, so I'd like to get these things started by just giving a little bit of background about yourself. I mean, you are, you're, you're a fellow Aussie, which is uh, it's nice to have you, the second Aussie I've had on. Um, yeah. And it's so, so I'm curious to Get your background and find out how, you know, and how someone from Queensland ends, ends up in the UK. So just give us a little bit of background on that. Ends up in sunny London. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I, I was a lawyer by a background, studied law in Australia and sort of did my traineeship there. And then I was actually, I actually moved to the UK in my early 20s and was a lawyer here for a few years. And I guess as, as entrepreneurs do, I sort of jumped around a bit. I moved back to, back to Australia. Uh, I was a lawyer there for a while and then got involved in the mortgage business there, actually, and actually was getting a little bit bored in Australia and was sort of keen to keen to move back to London. I definitely like London as a city and was keen to come back here. So I moved back in 2008 uh, to, to set up what has now become, become LendInvest. Okay, so then... I know, I know you had you had a business before Lend Invest called Montello, and I th- and so can you just mm. explain, you know, explain sort of I guess the genesis of that business, and then how you know when Lend Invest and how that sort of came into the picture. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when I moved back to the UK in two thousand and eight, met my now co-founder through through a mutual friend. And as I said, was was involved in a small mortgage lending business in Australia. And when I moved back to the UK, 2008, obviously, you know, interesting times generally, but we saw short-term mortgages as a particularly interesting opportunity, mm-hmm. or certainly we thought it was. The, the operators in the space at the time typically had one bank that they relied upon, and coming into the crisis, that bank sort of pulled their funding lines and their businesses disappeared, but not necessarily due to the credit quality of their loan books. And if I compare that to the short-term mortgage market in Australia, it was quite common for there to be small funds that sort of backed lenders in the industry. But when in the UK, that didn't really exist. So saw it as an opportunity, essentially, to sort of try and create an investment asset class around short-term mortgages. 
and allow investors to to invest in the loans as that we would originate as an originator. Uh, so we really set up as a funds management and loan origination business back then. Got off to a you know very slow start. Like I say, it was interesting times, but mm. really in many respects set the foundation for what is now a very scalable business. Uh, but we were very much an offline, short term. I guess certainly some would perceive as quite a niche player at, at that time. And it was only in sort of the last four or five years that we become very tech enabled and really tech driven as a business. And that was that was sort of a journey, I guess, that we went on initially as a, using technology to try and raise capital. So we set up our online investment platform, which sort of allowed investors to pick loans. And that was that was quite transformative for us as a business. So I think as an untried fund manager, it's very difficult to raise capital. As sort of fintech was becoming a really big thing here in the UK, uh, peer-to-peer platforms taking off and so on. When we set up our platform, it was very sort of um, elementary in, in the early days, but we were starting to raise more capital within a matter of months online than we had in sort of a funds management business that we'd spent sort of four or five years trying to build. So I guess technology really captured our our imagination initially just to raise capital and then sort of beyond that and we essentially pivoted what was Montello into into lend invest and became very uh, very tech orientated mm-hmm. okay so then I'm just I'm, I'm curious about the you know I just want to go back I mean you started this business in 2008 I mean uh, it, it, yeah that was yeah. you say that was uh you know, real estate was the cause of the crisis, and, uh, particularly in the US and, yeah. and, and yeah, globally, for that matter. For in, I mean, in most countries, it seemed. But so you said this bank pullback funding. What were the other options apart from the bank back then? And like, I'm just trying to get a, a sense of what the competitive landscape was for short term, you know, short term bridge loans in the UK. And, you know, how has that evolved over time? Yeah, it was amazing. It, it literally was a blank canvas in many respects. So, so one or two sort of smaller-ish players have survived through that period, and they're still in business today. But generally speaking, all of them went out of business. Wow. Um, so, you know, there's a there's a number now that it's sort of it's become a much more institutionalised space in the last ten years, I guess. But uh, you know, and it's dominated by sort of a big sort of five or six players. Uh, and which we are a part of, but most of those were fairly were, were new new players post the crisis. Hmm. Hmm. So then, so there's a while then that people really struggled, like these developers or whoever you know, tried really struggled to get short-term bridge loans. I take it. Yeah, they really did. It's quite interesting to be operating in that period because I think in many respects there were better opportunities for for property investors in terms of the discounts they could get to market um, and the sort of distressed situations that perhaps investors could capitalize on, but the funding wasn't there. And I guess that was probably one of the things that we underestimated. I think on paper, the business was a great opportunity for us as well, but uh, we probably didn't uh, calculate quite as accurately how difficult it would be to get investors. You know, like you say, mortgages were kind of the, the eye of the storm of the crisis. And so to try and get investors to be, you know, confident in us to, to originate deal flow that was of a quality that they'd want to invest in what was a real struggle in the early days but right. uh but i think uh, it was it was a good start for the business right right yeah and keep it, and obviously the short-term bridge loans weren't really the cause of the crisis it was more of the you know no, the, 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 the longer term generally that's... yeah so i, I want to just talk about the the actual loans themselves for a little bit 
you know, you've, I was just on your website this morning and it said you've done over 1.1 billion pounds worth of, worth of loans. And I, yeah. I presume the vast majority of those are these short term bridge loans. Can you, can you tell us sort of what's the, what are the typical, you know, what's the loan size, how long, interest rate, you know, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So we've got three products now. So the, the heritage of the business was in short term mortgages. We're still very dominant in that that sort of sector of the mortgage market, we've got about a sort of 10 to 15% market share in the UK. So that's that's a core product for us. Interest rates on that to the borrowers vary from sort of anywhere from 7 to 12% per annum, but it's a monthly charge and they can pay back any time mm-hmm. uh, early without without penalty. So it's a fairly flexible facility. Um, average duration is sort of six to seven months. So again, quite short dated. And usually it, the vast majority of our book is secured by first registered charge against the property, and we'd go to a maximum loan to value of 75%. But across the book, it's sort of 60 to 65%. So it's, it's pretty pretty conservative um, in terms of the lending profile. The other product which we've been active in most recently in the last sort of, I guess, two to three years uh, is development finance, which is more ground up, literally building a house on, on a you know block of land, more sort of extensive works being done to a property than what a bridge typically entails. And that can lend out to three years in duration and sort of similar sort of LTVs and similar sort of interest rates as well, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our most recent product, which we launched late last year, is Buy to Let. Or what they, is commonly referred to here in the UK as Buy to Let is essentially just an investment mortgage uh, where the, the borrower is not going to live in the property. They're, they're going to tenant it out right. uh, and earn a return on it. And that product goes out to 30 years uh, and is a much lower interest rate of sort of between 3 and 5% per annum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we lend from one month through to 30 years in duration now. Right. Wow. So I want to talk a bit about the the borrowers, the, you know, the, the, like you talk about, you've got development loans, but, you know, the, still these short-term bridge loans, I mean, they're obviously the fix and flip, you know, yeah. uh, sector is pretty, is pretty hot in the, in the US. There's lots of different players and, you know, and, and, and are these are sort of developers that, uh, you know, they, they buy a property that's, and they, they spend, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 grand doing it up and then, then, then sell it pretty quickly for a profit. Is that, is that the sector? Is that like, are these sort of, Small yeah. business people that are well, that are doing this, or who are who are the borrowers? Yeah, so we uh, we describe our borrowers as property entrepreneurs, um, and so those three products fit quite neatly as sort of catering to, as a one stop shop to that property entrepreneur customer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're they're professionals. They're doing this on a full time basis. They usually will be active in a certain geographical patch, so they know the agents, they know the market quite well, they know who the end buyer is going to be for the product. On the, on the bridge product, like you said, it's very timor- similar to the fix and flip or hard money product in the US. Uh, and it's typically someone buying at auction where they've got a 28-day completion period and they really just need quick capital uh, or they're going to buy and change the bathroom, kitchens, whatever it may be. Fairly cosmetic work, not necessarily sort of structural work. And then, like you say, look to sell it. Or in many instances, they're portfolio landlords. So they'll buy distressed properties or properties that need work, they'll do them and then they'll roll them into a sort of a long-term portfolio. So for us, the bridge product allows them to to move quickly if they need that quick capital development finance, if it's a more extensive project that they're working on, and now buy to let if they want to sort of hold it for, for a long period of time. And really, the buy to let product was a natural evolution for us in the sense that 
half of our business before was actually fix and flip, although sort of get sold, and then the other half sort of pretty much sat across borrowers that were doing the refurbishment works and then intended to hold for a long period of time. So they were refinancing with another buy-to-let lender. Mm-hmm. So uh, for us, uh, we've got the full complement of, of products that, that they want. Right. Right. And so I'm curious, you, you started off talking about technology and you, you, you brought technology to bear on the investor side of the business. And we'll talk a bit more of that, about that in a little bit. But I, I'm curious about the technology on the in the borrowing process, because, you know, property is still a, you know, there's a lot of offline stuff, a lot of offline records. Obviously, it's a, it's by definition an offline product. It's a piece of physical, physical property. So what, yeah. how have you brought technology to bear in the in the borrowing process? Yeah, so I think I think the, the mortgage space is hard, and I think that's that in some respects that's that's the attraction to it for us, uh, longer term. Um, but it is very difficult to try and automate a lot of it, like you say. So we still have an independent valuer that will go and visit the property, they'll go inside, they'll take photos, and so on. Um, so there's kind of pain points along the process that I think uh, the capital markets kind of demand of us in their underwriting processes to just adhere to for the time being, uh, right. and that does necessarily slow it down. But the technology is extremely useful in really um, speeding up the process so that uh, it really can land on an underwriter's screen. So we literally, all the decisions are still made by experienced underwriters, but all of the information can land on their screen in a much quicker way. And actually, they can make a more informed decision by taking from more data sources and you know, prevent, presenting them with a, a much fuller picture to, to make that decision that they need to make. Um, and some of that is as simple as just not having someone at a traditional financial institution that types the borrower's name into various different search platforms on a borrower or, or inspecting a property uh, to have that you know, drawn through APIs and, and done in a much quicker way through to the experience for the borrower. Here in the UK, uh, the market's very intermediated. So a lot of our technology is created to sort of cater to the borrower, but also with the broker in mind as well. And so really allowing them to transact with us in an easy as possible way, um, you know, docu-signing contracts and things like that, that in many respects, you know, I guess from your perspective, being very much in t- touch with what's happening in, in online lending would think that's not that revolutionary. But when you come from the mortgage world, that's kind of, that really is quite interesting and certainly gets to um, you know, allow us to transact very quickly. So on average, we're lending within 14 days of first point of contact from, from the borrower, mm-hmm. which is still slow, but the average mortgage in the UK takes three months. So it's, it's, it's definitely the quickest in the market. Right. And that's, yeah, it's still, it's still slow in the US for the most part. And that's what a lot of the, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs here are, are trying to speed up that process. So what about, so you, you mentioned brokers, is this, I mean, I'm just thinking about your channels for finding these people who, you know, the, I mean, obviously now you've, you're a major player, so you probably get a lot of word of mouth, but how, how are you finding, like, there's obviously new property entrepreneurs starting up, you know, every, every month and they're, they're saying, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a go. And like, how, how do you find them and how do you find the good ones? Yeah, sure. So it, it, it's, I think it's something as a business is still very much a work in progress. And the reality is a lot of it is still done in traditional ways. So mortgage brokers are very key to our business um, and, and are a large source of you know, deal flow for us. Uh, and so, like I say, it's creating calculators and all sorts of tools that they like and don't get from other lenders and make 
coming to us a much stickier proposition mm-hmm. through to, you know, the same as we see with the, the hard money lenders in the US using land registry system to try and profile types of borrowers that are most likely to want bridging finance or undertaking a development project to identify who they are and to, to reach out to them and, and start forming a relationship. Many times, most usefully through a real human, picking up the phone or meeting with them. So there are some sort of friction points, I guess, there in that process. But again, if you if you get a good intermediary or you get a good borrower, at the, the profile of that property entrepreneur I described before will transact on average five to six times a year. Right. Uh, so you know, it, it, it's good business once you form that relationship with them and it can be particularly sticky as well with the platform where they essentially just go online and they're providing new details for the new property they want to lend against and it can be done in a very streamlined way. Yeah, that's one of the great advantages you have as a property. You don't get, you don't, you don't get Zopra or rates that don't get uh, five or six uh, consumer loans coming in every yeah. year or funding circle for small business. It's not, you, you have that natural advantage that these are people that just, you know, their commodity that like their business is trying to find financing. That's sort of a core piece of. of yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, on, it's, on, the, it's the life of what they do. Yeah. 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 So I, I want to talk to you to the investor side for a bit. I know you said you started out, you know, you said you, you started out like peer to peer. You've, you've moved away from that now. What was the, what was the reasoning you know, behind that, behind moving away from sort of the, the pure peer-to-peer model? Yeah, sure. So, so we've been on a bit of a journey, I guess, on the investor side. So as we are at the moment, we have essentially four channels. We describe them as for, for investors to, to invest in the loans that we originate. And the ultimate sort of ideal is just to sort of have as wide a universe of investors as possible coming right. into the loan. So we, we still have our funds management business, which is kind of where we started so we run a fund out of Luxembourg, which is open-ended, continues to raise capital. Uh, we have our online investment platform, so investors can go on and select loans, but it's only to open to sophisticated and high net worth investors, which I think is kind of equivalent to your accredited investor in the US. Yep. We, we have traditional institutional lines, so banks like Citibank and so on uh, essentially buy our loans uh, through warehouse facilities. Uh, and then we have a retail bond, which we listed on the London Stock Exchange. But coming back to your question about the sort of online investment platform and, and peer-to-peer specifically, we probably like 2015, we, we raised equity and sort of got quite excited about the concept of going after retail investors to, to, to fuel our loan book. And I think we kind of came to the quick realisation that it was commercially just very expensive to acquire these retail investors. And I know that it sounds like I'm stating the obvious and everyone said it was going to be expensive and it just is expensive. So we certainly acquired more investors, but we started paying a lot more to, to acquire them. Um, and also when we went pure retail, so we did fairly mainstream advertising on London Underground and rail, cinema, direct mail, all that sort of stuff. Um, we just found that um, the type of investor we were attracting we weren't entirely sure that they perhaps really understood what they were investing in. Right. And so, and I think there was a bit of a change of the mood, mood music coming from the regulator in terms of uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement around fintech generally and, and, and peer-to-peer, but I think, you know, the regulator was starting to, they were giving signals that they were looking at this a lot more closely. Uh, and I think for us, we just felt that it was just 
so expensive to, to acquire these customers that, that we could probably do without them. And so, or, or that really that them investing online was not the most appropriate way for them to be investing, which was why we sort of, we transitioned retail away on the online platform. So only for sophisticated and high net worth investors. And then we launched the retail bond which is a London Stock Exchange listed bond program. And we just thought it was a more sort of robust regulatory structure for retail investors to be investing in. Uh, It's a liquid bond, pays a fixed coupon uh, and gives investors a a portfolio spread across many loans. So I guess it's kind of, that's the journey we've been on. And I think those four channels that we now have are, are pretty sound for what we're doing. I'm curious about, you know, imagine you would have got some pushback from the retail investors who were really, who were enjoying your platform, enjoying the returns or whatever. So the, the, this bond, did you get much uptick from retail investors on, on this bond? Yeah, we did. So it was targeted specifically for retail investors. So it was, it was a 500 million pound program when it launched and we do it in tranches. Uh, so we did uh, 50 million last year. We did 40 million just before Easter targeted towards retail investors. So the brokers, uh, the big sort of brokerage platforms here like Hargraves, Lansdowne and so on, uh, people could go online and, and buy into it and they still can post post the issue. I think the surprising thing for us is actually how much institutional take-up we had for it. Mm-hmm. So we did have a large number of institutional investors, you know, like pension funds buying into our retail bond. Uh, so I think it... it, it uh, it allowed us to engage in initial discussion with those sorts of investors that we hadn't had interaction with before, and they were coming in because they were comforted by uh, the fact that it was um, listed on the, the, the stock exchange and also rather satisfied retail investors, like you say, that they liked the platform. They certainly uh, were getting more comfortable with us as a brand and the returns we were able to provide, but they were able to still get it now, but just in a less sort of granular way so they're not selecting the loans. Right. And so is your, is your goal, you've got these four channels and, uh, you know, I imagine that, um, you know, some of them are bigger than others, but I mean, it sounds like what you've got now, you're really focused on diversity of, of different types of investors and you're, are you trying to grow these all, you know, equally or how do you think about it when you, when you have these four kind of buckets? Yeah, it doesn't quite work out as perfectly as them being equal, um, but certainly, uh, you know, we have, an emphasis on ensuring that we maintain, you know, a, a, a certain quantum through each of the channels. Definitely, as the business scales, um, the focus has been towards the institutional investor. And I think you know you see that across all sort of platforms that have gone through um, through a period of scaling. Uh, and for us, that tends to be the cheapest capital. So if we look at our buy-to-let loan, it's a thirty-year mortgage where the borrower is paying three percent. You know, there's not that many investors that want to lock up, go online and invest in that type of mortgage. So right. uh, it's, it's necessary to get institutional investors into it. I think for us, we want to continue to widen the universe. So we look at the pension funds and insurance companies as being particularly interesting for us as funding further products, you know, with a view in the sort of future of getting into the home loan space where, you know, those types of investors are happy to take a 30-year exposure at a certain cost. And, and we think that can be quite interesting from an, a borrower product perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sovereign wealth fund, geographically and um, as, as wide as possible of, of network of investors is, is what we're after. 
Right, right. So I read an article the other day about the there was a housing there's a housing shortage in the US, and I've also heard that there's even a bigger housing shortage in the UK. Obviously, you've got less land there than than we have here, but um, I'm, I'm I'm curious. <laughs> Yeah. So, what what is being done in in the UK to kind of address the the housing shortage there? Yeah. So they, they sort of the the UK press refer to it as the UK housing crisis, and the reality is that population growth has surpassed sort of the number of houses that have been built, and that's something that's been going on for the last couple of decades, actually. So there, there is a big shortage of housing, and so I think. From, from an investment perspective, it's a sound asset class to be lending into because, you know, you've got this sort of imbalance where there's, there's presumably a safety net uh, on the pricing side. But the government is very actively trying to, to get small house builders or, to, sorry, to get house builders building more houses. And there has been a focus now on realising that the small house builders are the ones that are going to be able to really make that difference in, in the shortfall. Right. So post the crisis, a lot of those players left the market and haven't come back. And so you know, access to finance for small house builders and so on is, is, a, is a key issue. And it's something that we've actually been, you know, get a, lot of, get a lot of traction engaging with government in terms of trying to sort of foster and support that market. So it's really just build more houses is, is the simple answer, but it's something that will take a long time to, uh, to sort of get to the levels they need to. Right, right. And so then I have to ask you about Brexit. It's, um, you know, we've been, a, we're a couple of years now removed from the Brexit decision. And I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, obviously there's still, there's still deadlines that are, that are, that are coming up here fairly soon. But yeah, I'm curious to know how has Brexit affected your business over the last two years, if at all? Yeah. So I think we, in many respects, we don't see a huge impact on our business. We're, we're a UK-only lender at the moment. We have a lot of international investors, but they're sort of comfortable with getting UK exposure and it's part of their sort of investment portfolio that they're, that they're, they're doing. So that, that side of it is fine. I think more on the ground is the fact that it's just been a huge distraction. Uh, and so I think, yeah, it, it, you, you can't get through a discussion or a meeting these days without talking about Brexit and, and what impact it is going to have. For us, difficulty has been um, in some respects around uh, employees uh, right. and attracting staff so uh, the free movement of people has been something you know across Europe that's been really useful for us and a lot of our engineering team are from Europe and before you know we've relocated people from Spain and Italy and and wherever across Europe and it's just not a problem you know you, you they can be here next week sort of thing uh, mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about visas and all the rest of it when now there's just a bit of anxiety around whether those conditions will remain and whether those people will be able to remain on the same terms and certainly in terms of trying to attract people from across Europe to join the business has become more difficult. But again, I think I think we'll work through it. I, I, it's, it is just going to continue to be a bit of uncertainty for the next year or so. But on the medium term, I'm very optimistic. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the rules and regulations that come out of Europe just get applied here in the UK and, and that has caused a lot of frustration for us as a business over the last 10 years, and I think there'll be an opportunity to try and create a more competitive commercial environment in the UK, actually, post-Brexit. Right. But we're going to have to go through the next few years to get there. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see. So yeah. who are the people? You, you, as you said you raised equity capital in 2015. Who, yeah. are, who are the equity investors backing LendInvest? 
Yeah, so we, we actually only have one external investor in the business. So that's, uh, at the moment, that's, that's Atomico, uh, which is a European VC backed by Nicholas Sandstrom, who is one of the founders of Skype. Uh, so very uh, technology-focused uh, VC investor, and, and they've been a great partner for us in, in the business. My co-founder and I are not from a technology background, so we've definitely lent on them to, to assist with that side of things. And I guess uh, you can stay tuned, Peter, for things may, may evolve. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I know you, you also had a Chinese investor I remember at one stage. Have you? Does that Chinese investor no longer part of part of the scene? <laughs> yeah, no longer around. Uh, yeah, we did. We we did have a Chinese investor for a period of time. We subsequently bought uh, them out of the business, and and now it's just Atomico. Right, right. So obviously, you have to ask this. You know, you um, you did you did win the extremely prestigious uh, Lendit Award for real estate yes. of the year recently, and um, you know, you beat you signing beat a, out on it. Yes, you beat a bunch of really uh, pretty impressive companies in the US. Um, so just got to ask you, uh, you know, what's, uh, you know, you've also been to many, many lender conferences in the US. Do you have plans of coming to the US market anytime soon? Uh, not, not really. I think when we, when we first, well, no, just to be categorical about that. So <laughs> when we first raised equity, we, we spent a lot of time looking at the US. We looked at different markets, Australia, Ireland, and, and others where we thought sort of legal jurisdictions sort of fit with what we're doing. But I think uh, it's been really interesting to go to the lender conferences and see the market evolve, really, the whole sort of online lending space, and particularly around property, actually, where it feels like a few years ago there was there was almost more excitement than there is now. I think people are realising that it's pretty hard and it's, uh, you know, it's difficult to automate and all those sorts of things. For us, we look at the UK mortgage market as just a huge opportunity. It's, it's £280 billion a year. Um, in annual originations, and there's not that many players. You know, there's banks talking about digitising mortgages and so on, but there's not that many that are really actively making the progress that we are as a business. So I think for us, it's really just focus on what's right in front of us. And then, you know, we'd love to be a global company, but I think uh, we've got the next few years in front of us here in the UK. Okay, so so final question I've got to ask. Um, you've been there's been talk in the press about IPO for Lend Invest for I think going back a couple of years now. It's the, the the talk sort of started. Um, you've got you know funding circle seem like they're they're getting closer. Obviously, no confirmation from them yeah. at all. But um, I, I'm curious about what your attitude is to the public markets and if we if we'll see a Lend Invest IPO in the next twelve months. Well, I've learned not to put a timing on it, um, <laughs> right. but uh, we, we we definitely aspire to be a publicly listed company. I think for us, a, a key part of achieving our, our true ambitions as a business is trying to drive down our cost of capital. Uh, and we think being a listed business just naturally sort of walks us to that um, that direction. Uh, it also puts a big stamp of credibility on the business and allows investors to participate in the equity upside as we, we go on that journey. So I think an IPO is just, you know, it's just part of the journey that we're on. Um, and yeah, I think, like I said, I won't put a time on it, but in the, in the next year or two, that's something we'd like to achieve. Right. So I'm sure you're, you're sort of supporting funding circle and watching that, watching them very closely, I imagine, as this process unfolds. Yeah, we are. And, you know, they've, they've done an exceptional job in terms of building a really big brand here in the UK or certainly in the online lending space and, you know, taking it international and so on and, and really forging this marketplace concept. So, 
yeah, we'll watch that closely. Uh, it's a great management team over there, and, and we wish them well. And uh, we, we, we look forward to seeing how it all unfolds. Right. Well, I think... Yeah, certainly the Lend Invest has, uh, you know, you, you're not you're not directly competing with them, but I know people do sort of paint paint you with, you know, you're in the same fintech bucket. So, you know, a, a successful a successful go there and uh, and others. I know there are others that others sort of, you know, Zopa and others have talked about it as well. But, um, you know, we certainly yeah. will be following it very closely and, and wish you all the best, Christian. Thank you very much, Peter. Okay, thanks for coming on the show. We'll see you. Cheers. Bye. It's going to be very interesting to me to see how the IPO landscape develops this year. Yeah, we've obviously we talked about Funding Circle, there's Green Sky here in the US. There's many, many others waiting in the wings that are sort of watching to see how these these new IPOs perform. I think you know, fintech as as a whole has not really had that many successful IPOs. There's been some challenges with some of the companies that have gone public already, but I think the I, I sense that sort of the environment is about to change, and you know I think we will see several successful IPOs this year, and I think that's going to be a great thing for the industry. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Wonder Capital. What if you could help businesses across the US go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually? Since 2015, individuals have invested tens of millions of dollars using Wonder Capital's solar investment platform. These individuals have helped to finance nearly 200 large-scale solar energy projects across the US. Alongside individual investors, Wonder also works with financial institutions like a prominent Wall Street hedge fund that recently invested over $100 million with Wonder. If you're interested in helping businesses go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually, go to wondercapital.com slash lendacademy. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism.